You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. My name is Roger. I'm the associate pastor here. If we've never met before, I'd love to meet you after the service or something. Um, Today, I get to talk to you about life after Christmas. Life, because life still goes on, right? Everybody have a wonderful Christmas? Is it good, right? Did you get the things you were wanting for? Did you get to spend time with family? Just enough time with family? It was great. It was wonderful. We're celebrating Christmas now in town with all of our family, and it's just, it's a tremendous blessing. We had a great one. Um, But of course, Christmas, Christmas is all about a baby being born, right? And and if anything is true, the the birth of a baby is a truly life-altering thing, right? We're bouncing them in here right now. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like, like there's nothing like a baby to turn your whole world upside down and backwards and inside out all at the same time. It, it's, it's the most thrilling and frightening thing that will ever happen to you. And, and when, I say, when I say the birth of a baby, I, I do, of course, mean like his or her actual entering into the world, that actual moment, Right? For, for both of our kids, I was actually the first person to hold both of our babies when they were born. And I remember when our son Garrett was born, I, 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 have, I, have, I have literally no visual memory of it happening. Maybe this is God's grace to me, I don't know. But like, I don't remember visually what it looked like. But I remember standing there next to Angela, and she's pushing like crazy. She's grunting like a mama bear, because that's what the midwife was telling her to do. And, and the midwife looked at me and said, okay, are you ready? You ready to catch him? I said, okay. And she said, when he, I'm going to get his shoulder out. And when he comes out, you just slip your hands up under his armpits like this. And you just, so I was like, okay. So I saw a shoulder. And, and all I, I have no visual memory, but I have this incredible, like, tactile memory of what it felt like to hold his little body like this, where my fingers would just wrap around his entire torso, you know, and under his armpits so he didn't slip, you know. And I brought him to Angela. And nothing was, same was, nothing was the same from that point on. So I do mean the actual birth, right? The, the fear and the anticipation, the pain and the joy, the, the exhaustion and the adrenaline, the tears and the laughter, the mess and the beauty, all of it. You know, and Mary and Joseph, just like every couple ever, experienced all of these things. And not to mention the additional challenges they had, right? Of being completely alone, out of town, away from family, housed in a cave with animals for the momentous event. So I mean that, but when I say the birth of a baby, I also mean everything that happens immediately afterward. There's the exasperated cries of this baby exposed to the cold air of the world after this existence, like entirely warm and liquefied. Those first hours of connection of skin and smell between the parents and the baby, the the commotion and noise of visitors, the nonstop in and out of well-wishers, the oohs and the ahs, the the speaking of the baby's name from voice after voice after voice as they come to say hello, the the repetition of the birth story over and over again. You know, you, you tell that story again and again. And Mary and Joseph, they, they may not have had all of this in the normal way, but they certainly did. Their, their visitors and celebrants were, were, were shepherds and angels and magi who had traveled for possibly more than 100 days from the east just to bring extravagant gifts to this baby, right? They had all of that. They also had like cows and sheep and chickens and whatever else they had hanging out. All the commotion, 
But I also mean something else when I talk about the birth of a baby. I, I also mean everything that happens after that. When, when, when everyone is gone, when, when there's no one else offering to help with the baby or make a meal or do chores around the house, when, when everything is quiet, when, every, when everything is truly still and silent. We have the song Silent Night that we sing around Christmas time, right? Lovely Carol. The, the real silent night is that first night that suddenly everyone's gone. And you're terrified because you're like, we were two, now we're three. And did someone make a mistake by letting us have this baby? Like, <laughs> is someone going to come knock on our door and be like, oh, wait, wait, never mind. Just, we were, it was a mistake, somebody else's. You know that moment? It's, it's one of those moments that I think only first-time parents and maybe even second or third-time parents have when suddenly everything is really calm and quiet. There's just this brand new baby, vulnerable and magnificent, and, and only these inexperienced parents. And suddenly in that vacuum that was once filled with so much noise and so much activity, there, there comes this new sense of like fear-filled excitement because life has really begun. Now some new kind of life has started. And at some point, very, very likely it was really soon after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph had to vacate the livestock living quarters. Maybe they needed that too. Maybe it was just time to go. They, they came, they did the census, and it's time to go home. The, and the bassinet was now once again just an ordinary feeding trough. That's why we have this picture for you, right? It's just, now it's just an ordinary feeding trough. And now they had to make this return trip home from Bethlehem to Nazareth. But now, like, holding the baby on the outside. Back to Joseph's job. Back to family and friends. Back to all the household chores. Back to their neighbors who were suspicious of this divine conception story they were trying to convince them of. Back to their home where they were now live not as two, but as three. The, the excitement, the drama, and this extraordinary cosmic spectacle of Jesus' birth, it had come and it had gone, and now came the ordinary and holy work of just living life as a family. And, and the same is true for us, guys. Like Christmas, Christmas is wonderful in and of itself. You guys love Christmas? It's, I love it. It's great. Angela would say Thanksgiving is her favorite holiday, you know. But Christmas is awesome, and we love it. We love celebrating with all of our family. And for most people, however, like, it, it comes and it goes. There's celebration, and there's parties, and there's presents, and there's lights. But, but then it's back to business as usual. How many of you guys are excited about business as usual tomorrow? You guys going to work? <laughs> right? And for, for us, though, hopefully that's not the way that it is for us as Christians in a real deep sense. Hopefully for us as Christians, it's not Christ came and was incarnated, great, yay, sing some songs, and now business as usual and we move on. Hopefully for us, life after Christmas is when real life begins. I, think, I believe this is true. The life after Christmas is where real life begins. 
each year as we celebrate Christmas. It's, it's not a mere nostalgic nod to some event that happened 2,000 years ago. Each Christmas is an opportunity for Christ to be born to us anew, for his incarnation to birth subsequent divine incarnations in our lives all the time. So this is what I want to explore today. That life after Christmas is when real life begins. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 2. So if you've got Bibles, go ahead and open them up. You can jump into Luke chapter 2. We're going to kind of read this a little bit piecemeal. Um, And uh, before we read the scriptures, let's pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on them anew today and help us hear him. So Jesus, we do. We give you all honor and glory once again. Thank you for, for giving up your spot in heaven, in glory with the Father, and coming to be incarnate, to becoming a person, as Eugene Peterson says, to move into the neighborhood with us. We stand in awe of you. And we just pray this morning that the same Holy Spirit that caused you to become uh, birthed out of Mary, we ask that you would come this morning, Holy Spirit, and birth your word in us anew. Let us hear you. Let us see you in new ways. May we leave here this morning transformed. So pray that you would speak. I pray that your voice, Holy Spirit, would be much louder than my own. Amen. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 2, we get this interesting thing, right? If you read all of Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, it's some of the longest uh, um, like birth narratives that we have of Jesus out of any of the Gospels. They're pretty, they're pretty wonderful. Um, now, I'm going to pause here, though, and say like, I have a little bit of beef with the Gospel writers, right? Is it okay? Like, Can you have beef with people who wrote the Bible? Right? Because if you read most of the Gospels, what happens is you get all this glory, all the angels, all the divine pronouncements, all of this this stuff, and then suddenly Jesus is like 30 years old out in the desert. Right? There's somewhere between 28 and 30 years that is just like not there. And I'm really annoyed at the gospel writers for this, right? Like, certainly there's something worth telling, you know? Certainly there's something worth telling. Well, Luke has one little snippet for us, one little story. This is the only story we get of Jesus of any age between, like, infant and 30 years old. So this is it, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. We start off with 41. It says this. Jesus' parents used to go to Jerusalem every year for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the feast days were over, they began the journey back, but the boy Jesus remained in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know. They thought he was in the traveling party and went a day's journey before looking for him among their relatives and friends. So Mary and Joseph, right, they travel to Bethlehem to do the census. Jesus is born. They travel back to Nazareth. And then every year when it was Passover time, Passover being the, the highest festival in, in the Jewish tradition, right, this commemorating their, their exodus out of Egypt, their deliverance from Egypt. As good Jews, every single year, they made this trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Now, Nazareth to Jerusalem, if you took it today, I think it's like Highway 6 or something like that, it'd take you like an hour and a half to get there, all right? 
In the ancient Near East, though, we didn't have cars and we didn't have highways, so it was like a 30-hour journey on foot. Maybe a little faster if you had donkeys or something like that. And now, any of you guys, any of you guys ever done like road trips, like for Christmas or something, Thanksgiving, right after having babies? Right? It's the worst. <laughs> I remember our first trip with Garrett at Christmas time. Normally, to get to my parents' house it might be like six hours or something. I think it took nine. Right? I remember like, it's like 11.30 at night and we're pulled over on the side of the highway on like 85 or 75 somewhere north of Atlanta in just the dark of night and he's just screaming and we're just like, we don't know what to do, you know? <laughs> Imagine doing this, but you don't have a car, right? And, and you're walking with this baby. Now, not only do they do this with Jesus as an infant, but they did, Right? Less than a year old, they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem with their baby because that's what you do. Then imagine they're, they're making this journey with Jesus and he's like one or two years old, right? And it starts getting a little bit easier, right? You're still having to stop to change diapers. You're still having to stop to like breastfeed. You're still having to do all these things. You can't go as fast as you normally do. So it's taking two to three days at this point, but it's maybe a little bit easier. Then Jesus is like three and four and five years old, Right? Toddler phase. Anybody done road trips with toddlers? <laughs> right? In some ways, it's a little bit easier, but only if you have technology. <laughs> right? Only if you've got a van with a DVD player. But in some ways, it might have been a little bit easier because they could just travel around. I'm going to fix my mic here real quick. Technology. I said technology and made fun of it. And my microphone jumped off my head. But they do that. There you go, right? So Jesus about this age, now it's maybe a little bit easier because he can walk, right? So, so maybe there's actually long stretches where they're finally like, saving my back, right? You know that back pain from carrying babies around, right? Like They're like, we don't have to do that. He's walking, but it's slower walking. It's more distracted walking because there's rocks on the ground, <laughs> right? There's animals to go say hi to. Right? There's all the things that they're excited about. Then Jesus gets to be like five, six, seven, eight, and it actually gets to be a little bit fun. Right? And this really is, this is it's a fun age of kids. He, he can travel more easily. He's walking. He's only getting about as tired as you would, right? Because somehow when they're that age, they've got this energy. He's running around. He's playing with the cousins. If there's other neighbors that you're traveling with, they're all kind of like out and about. You know, sleeping at night gets a little bit easier, you know, because you can talk to him, you can reason through, like, why we're sleeping out in the middle of nowhere, you know, on the hard ground. And, and, and that goes along. And then he's like 8, 9, 10, 11, and he's actually becoming helpful, right? He can carry some things. He can help lead the donkey. You can say, hey, Jesus, will you go get us some water over at that well? And he can slowly, and spilling half of it, but he can get you some water on his way back. And, and life is finally, it's working, right? At this point, they probably have other children, right? So Jesus is, he's helping to take care of his siblings while they're traveling along, and, and this is wonderful. Then comes, years, comes year 12, and they go to Jerusalem. They make this long 30-hour trek, probably doing it in about two days, right? They're, they've got this down to a science now. They do the Passover thing. They celebrate it. It's all a big to-do. They turn around. They start heading back. They start setting up camp that first night, they're laying out the mats, and suddenly they can't find Jesus. He's just not there, right? At this point, it had been a couple years. They just kind of knew. He's in and around. He's with somebody. He's with aunts and uncles. He's with the neighbor's kids. He's somewhere, 
But now they're setting up camp for the night. And imagine this as a parent. You ever lost your kid in like a, like a, like a grocery store or, or a department store or something like that? Anybody who's ever been a kid who's tried to hide in a department store? Do you guys do that? <laughs> you know you did, right? Imagine, you know that terror, that feeling of like, oh my gosh, it's this Amber Alert situation. I never thought this would be me, right? Well, suddenly they're feeling this, but it's like, like an 8, 9, 10-hour walk, 15-hour walk potentially back to where you last saw him. And they probably couldn't even take off that night. They probably had to try to sleep. And then at first light, they're, they're packed up and they're like, fam, friends, we're taking off. We're heading back to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem. 11 uneventful years of travel. And now like every parent's worst nightmare. This is life as a family, right? Now it goes on, verse, verse 45. It says, when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him because they're good parents. And so it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was astonished at his understanding and his answers. Three days, guys. You know they were beside themselves. I imagine this is three days, like Mary and Joseph, they haven't slept much, right? They're like broke because the money that they had budgeted for this trip was now extended and they're just like squatting anywhere they can. They're probably staying in another stable and they're like, oh, we've been here before, right? <laughs> but now it's just because we're poor and we can't afford an, an, an inn, you know, even if they had rooms. They probably haven't slept because they're just so distraught. Their worst fears, right? Like what happened to him that caused him to be here? Where's Jesus been sleeping? Who, has anyone been feeding him? Who's taking care of him? This is terrible. This is really, really horrible. But after three days, they find him in a really, you know, it's always the last place you look. It's a terrible thing about looking for something. It's always the last place you look. And they find him, for them, it was an unexpected place, right? They're checking the local parks, right? Maybe they're, they're checking the local schools, Maybe, maybe they're checking where near there's like, like a marketplace where he can like find food and he can beg from people or something, right? They're, they're checking major town centers. They're probably checking like local hospitals. Has anybody brought in the 12-year-old boy, right? They're checking with local authorities, the police, right? Has, has anyone like come and said that they're lost, you know, because he's ours? Then, out of desperation, after three days, I guess we'll look in the temple, and there he is. And there he is. Goes on in verse 48. When they saw him, they were quite overwhelmed. It's interesting. Go, re go read some different translations and see how different translators do this word overwhelmed. I think regardless, this is an understatement. <laughs> and this is just my suspicion. Here's the question. Where did John get this story? Where did John hear this story? We don't know. We don't know. What we do know about John, though, is that John had a really special relationship with Jesus, right? And we also know that, that John and his mother Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, had a special relationship. That as Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at John and said, this is now your mother. And he said, this is now your son, right? Like, take care of each other. Now, this is just me, but what I imagine... It's possibly while Jesus was alive, certainly after Jesus had died and resurrected, John's writing all this stuff down. And then he's like, 
seeing Mary all the time, taking care of her, right? And he says, Mary, can you tell, what was it like living with Jesus? What was it like? This is why I'm so annoyed at the gospel writers, because I want to know that. What was, what was Jesus like as a toddler? like a school-age kid. What was, what was he like as a teenager? What was it like when Jesus went through puberty? Real things, real life. What, what was it like as, as you guys started teaching him Joseph's trade of being a carpenter? What, what was it like just living with him before his ministry? And, and what's amazing is that we get none of those stories, but we get this one. And just what I suspect is that Mary kept a lot of these things really close to her heart. I also suspect that most of the stories were just so ordinary that they were just not even worth the papyrus to write them down. Just ordinary things. Because Jesus still, he was fully God, but he was also just fully human, so he was just a kid. But then one day, Mary says, okay, I'll tell you one story. Can I tell you the worst thing Jesus ever did to us? And John's like, yes, please. Ooh, this is going to be juicy. Totally writing this one down, right? So when they saw him, they were quite overwhelmed. I don't think that's how Mary put it when she was telling the story. Maybe John's trying to make her look better, right? Child, said his mother, why did you do this to us? Because he did. He did it to them, right? Look, your father and I have been in a terrible state looking for you. Why were you looking for me, he replied. Didn't you know I would have to be getting involved with my father's work? Now, what he, when he says, why were you looking for me, he doesn't mean like, why would you look for me, you know, like a tween, right? Like, you know a tween would say that. You all hate me anyways, you know? I, I don't think Jesus is saying it with that tone. I think what he means is why were you bothering to look for me anywhere else but here? Of course this is where I would be. It should have at most only taken you one day to travel back here and find me. Instead, you stretched it out to four. Not my fault. <laughs> why were you looking for me? Didn't you know? I think this is, and Mary's also telling this story because there's something telling here. Didn't you know? I would have to be getting involved with my father's work. And she doesn't say this, but I suspect that her response was, yeah, yeah. Something was shifting here, right? What, what, what we get here is this really interesting glimpse into Jesus' maturing self-awareness and God-awareness. We had a really interesting conversation recently. I'm part of a book club with some of you guys, and we were reading a book, and just kind of like as a, a sidebar in this book club, we were talking about, did Jesus, did Jesus know he was God incarnate? Did, did Jesus know for his whole life that he was the Messiah, right? Was this something that he was like innately just like knowledgeable of, or, or did he have to like grow into that understanding? I'll refrain from offering any opinions of my own on here. I will just say that people have written entire PhD, these, PhD theses and written entire books about what it would mean one way or the other if Jesus knew or didn't know. But taking into account for a moment that what we see is a maturing Jesus. He's growing up at this point. And, and around that age, kids are beginning to figure out who they really are, right? Our son just turned 12. He's really starting to figure out, like, what are his tastes, 
What are the things he feels drawn to that's not because mom and dad said you're going to do this and you're going to do that? Is I think what's happening here is Jesus has this growing awareness of who he is and of who God is and, and, and what that relationship means and what that looks like. And what he knew, if nothing else at this point, what he knew is that he had to be getting involved with his father's work. So going on, the last three verses says this, they didn't understand what he had said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and lived in obedience to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. So Jesus became wiser and taller, gaining favor both with God and with the people. What's interesting about these verses is this is, this is kind of like the commentary on what just happened. And we don't know 100%. Is this just John's commentary on it? I think at least a little bit it's influenced by Mary, right? Telling the story that this is her commentary on what's going on. And it says that they didn't understand what Jesus said. But even being able to say that they didn't understand means that later on they did understand. At some point to Mary and Joseph, it became clear, oh, all right. When he said he had to be about the father's business, we get it now. At some point, they probably went back to him and said, Jesus, remember when you said in the incident, in the incident which shall not be named that you had to be about the father's business? I think we get it now. I think we get it now. Jesus says, okay, good, I'm glad. He said, never do it again, though. Still can't do it ever again, right? And what's interesting here, apparently he never did. Apparently he never did. And it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and lived in obedience to them. Okay, that wasn't cool. <laughs> Maybe in the future, if he needed a little extra time in the temple, they just built in an extra day, you know? All right, it's Jesus' temple day. We're going to go to the market. We'll do some shopping. Pick you up later. But real life, from the birth up until Jesus' ministry, like normal real life just went on. Real life full of travel and growth and maturity and, and the awkward parent-child relationships and just all the ordinary things of life that weren't even worth telling stories about because they would be just like your story and my story. But then this very last verse, we get this interesting statement about Jesus, right? So he became wiser and taller, because that's what happens with kids. They get taller, right? He's growing physically, but he's also growing in his wisdom and understanding. It says he gained favor with God and with people. There was somehow you could tell more and more as Jesus matured that people were responding to him well, Right? Somehow he has this ability to, to just talk to people and interact with people. And, and... But then there's also this sense that somehow God's favor is resting on him too. And this is the question for us that I want to pose. Is how can we mature or grow like Jesus did? Because if real life begins after Christmas, then what is real life like, how do we grow in favor with God and with others the way Jesus did? Because physical growth will happen, right? We all get taller. 
then we all start getting wider. We don't all get wiser. We don't all gain, grow in favor with other people. Sometimes we start losing favor with other people. I liked you so much better when you were eight, you know? That requires our participation. It required Jesus' participation to some degree, right? That's how he knew. I'm going to stay in the temple. I'm going to be about my father's business. I want to give you guys just kind of four things to think about, about how we can grow like Jesus. And the first is this, is one, is accept obscurity and ordinariness. Make friends with it. Have them over for dinner. Let this be the normal place that you live your life is just being okay with obscurity and ordinariness. Like, like most, most growth happens in obscurity where you don't see it. Most growth happens in places like Nazareth. This backcountry town that everybody looks down on that's just like, what, that place? Most growth and maturity doesn't make for really fancy and exciting storytelling. Again, perhaps, perhaps that's a lot of the silence in the Gospels. Guys, mysterious and wonderful things happen in the ordinary, in the common, in the everyday. And if I have to confess something, I have to confess, I am guilty far too often of looking for some big move of God. And I'm so busy looking for this big move of God that I miss his gentle movements in my everyday life. And then I'm disappointed because I didn't see some spectacular thing. I'm guilty of believing that God wants me to do some big, extravagant, powerful, influential thing for him when really all he is probably saying to me most of the time is, Roger, just just go home. Just go home. Do some dishes. Love your wife and kids. Clean the garage. Take the dog for a walk. Just, Just go do those things with me. Just go live. But there is growth and transformation that happens in small, incremental, and barely noticeable ways. Most of what God does in you, most of what God does through you, is never going to be novel worthy. Most of what God does in you and through you, it's like it's not going to go viral. Sorry, it's just not. God's work does not spread like a virus. According to Jesus, God's work spreads like yeast in a batch of dough. It's just slow and gentle, and you just kind of let it sit overnight, and then you come back, and you're like, oh, yeah, something happened. Sometimes the work of God doesn't happen like a virus. It happens like seeds that are carried off randomly by birds, spread around. Years later, there's a plant that grows up. So just accept obscurity and ordinariness. If you feel obscure, if you feel ordinary, I say to you, welcome to the club and rejoice in that because you are in the place where Christ is born and where Christ will live with you. Two, get involved with your father's work. 
Get involved with your father's work. Now, what is this work that Jesus is referring to? This is really interesting. Because at this point, like, he doesn't seem to be doing much. Certainly not the work that we normally associate whenever we think about what is the work of God and what is the work of God with Jesus, right? There's no preaching, healing, casting out of demons, feeding the poor, welcoming the outcasts. Like, none of that's happening. So what can we understand about this work that Jesus seemed so intent on that he would ditch his family for a few days? Let me suggest that that it's not by being a consumer of religious goods and services, but it's by being a participant doing something, and, and not just doing religious things as like an add-on to your life, right? Not as, it's not like just another hobby, right? Like, well, I have my job, and then I cross-stitch, and I golf, and I do church. And the evenings before bed, I scroll through Pinterest, <laughs> right? Like, those are fun things. That's not what the life of Christ is meant to be. But it's weaving spirituality into the very fabric of your life and who you are and just how you live in the world. So three quick specific ideas that we do see from Jesus here that I think are worth noting. One, it means being in his house. It means being in God's house. Some translations interpret this verse that way. The word there is really tricky. So it could mean being about the father's business. It could mean being in the father's house. Um, Much of the father's business is in his house. And if you're in the father's house, then there's going to be some business to do. So I don't know if it's worth splitting hairs over. But from Jesus' perspective, this was the obvious place to look for him. In the temple. For us, in church. And increasingly in our culture, church, that is the regular gathering of believers, feels optional. I know you guys. A lot of you guys are here every single time the doors are open. Bless you for that. But for a lot of us, it's, you know, did I sleep well enough the night before? Right? Is there some other activity I'd rather do? Well, I already did it last week or the week before, so that's good. I got my monthly fix. It's optional. Now, true, I will say this, church is not the only place where you can worship or pray or experience God. In fact, if church is the only place that you are worshiping or praying or experiencing God, then I'll have a different sermon for you, all right? We can't do that today. There's so much more. But church should be a regular, predictable place of worship and prayer. Church should be that place that if someone is looking for you on a Sunday morning and they can't find you and they're pulling their hair out, you should say, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know where I would be? Right? That's not pastor guilt. That's not pastor guilt. That's because something happens when the gathering of God's people happens, when we make it a reflexive, habitual rhythm of our life. And it's just normal and ordinary and obscure. The second thing is he talks about listening to teachers. 
I love, this is, uh, it makes me think of how Paul says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And in an age in which we are flooded with input from all sides, nonstop, through multiple outlets and from dubious sources, we need to put ourselves in position to receive clear, intelligent, and helpful teaching. We just have to, because it all starts here with how we think and what we think about. Listen to teachers. And that doesn't just mean like me or Reese or Mary Margaret or Angela or any other pastoral staff that's teaching. That means small group leaders too, right? I will make a strong pitch that these people should be local, however, right? I don't think what any of you need is another celebrity preacher. Whenever somebody tells me like, oh, well, so-and-so, and I'm listening to like blah, blah, blah preacher, and I'm just trying so hard not to say names right now. Like I'm listening to blah, blah, blah preacher on the weekends. I'm like, great. That's great. But I do believe this. I believe in the local church. I believe in the local gathering of God's people as a concrete, tangible, and essential expression of the larger church, capital C, throughout the world. We are a part of that. But that God intends for us to be part of a local church. And part of this, this is just part of it, is because somehow, in some strange, spirit-inspired way, there are things that preachers and teachers hear, that, that we say here, that you need to understand, that maybe no one else is going to say. Now, this also goes on to point three, is this involves being in God's house, involves listening to teachers, it means asking questions, and you cannot ask questions of your celebrity preachers. I've tried. <laughs> Hit them up on Twitter. They don't reply. Because they have their own local churches. They have their own local congregations that they're responsible to ask questions of. So ask questions. Put yourselves in positions to say, wait a minute, we were talking about this, we read that, what does that mean? This is why we do things like Alpha. If you're not asking questions, you're doing it wrong. There's always something to explore. There's always some wonderful mystery to uncover. Three, this is an unpopular one. Three, humble yourself in obedience to someone. I tried to not preach this one so bad, but I have to say this. It's super interesting. And this runs against the grain of our Western culture real, real bad. But although Jesus knew who his real father was, and he seemed, to, he seemed primed to play this like divine trump card to Mary and Joseph, right, his earthly parents, he didn't do it. He just lived in obedience to them. And this isn't just for children, right? This is, this is the thing. I don't think it's just, we love to say it's for children. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. And then, once as Americans, we're parents. We're like, you can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. If you're going to be that arrogant and that self-assured, I think you're also doing something wrong. Not that there's someone that has control over you or influence over you in such a way that they just dictate every single thing of your life, Right? But there's something about choosing to just live normal life where we're humbled enough to listen to someone. Who is that someone that you listen to? For a lot of you, it might be your spouse. Like Angela and I live that way. We totally believe in like mutual submission, right? And there are times when Angela says something and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I need to do that. I need to not do that. You need to be this way or not that way. 
I have other people in my life, like my spiritual director, who if he says something really straight to me, I heed it. So who are you, who will you listen to? We, we as, as in our culture of individualism, we have an overinflated sense of our rights, but the call of Jesus is to lay down our rights. You don't get to do whatever you want to do. Humble yourself in obedience to someone. And fourth, and finally, do all of this for a long, long time. Maturity requires playing the long game. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. This is also difficult for us as Americans. We want everything quick, fast, and in a hurry. And if the Wi-Fi is slow, we're calling wow. What's the problem? What am I paying you for? It's interesting for Jesus, right? We we get his infancy, we get twelve years, twelve years old, and then at around thirty years old, he's an adult, right? Thirty years of just living in Nazareth, obeying his parents, going to temple, listening to teachers, asking questions, getting taller, getting wiser. Growing in favor with people, growing in favor with God. What would be the summary of your life after 30 years? This is the summary that someone gave to John. Maybe John came up with it himself. I don't know. But this was an interesting summary. After 30 years, he he got taller and wiser, grew in favor with God and with people. Maybe for you, even in this next year, what, what would you want to be the summary of yourself in, at the end of 2022? Right? Suddenly, I'm like, maybe my goal needs to be that I can say that I grew in favor with God and with people by the end of the year by doing these things. But growth happens slowly over the long term, over the span of your entire lives. And if that's the summary of our lives, guys, I think we win. We're in good company with Jesus. Why don't you stand up with me?